0: Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. This is Carolyn reading to you from the Cape Cod Times on Wednesday, September 6th. We'll start today with the weather. Today, we'll see highs of 80 degrees. It will be partly sunny and humid. The sun rose this morning at 6.12 a.m., and it will set tonight at 7.07 p.m. Tonight's weather will be clear, warm, and continued humid. Tomorrow, Thursday, September 7th, highs will be 84 degrees and lows will be 71 it will be partly sunny and again a humid day. On Friday, it will continue to be humid with partial sunshine. We'll see highs of 80 degrees and lows of 68 degrees. Saturday will be a partly sunny day with perhaps a a stray thunderstorm and will be humid. Saturday's highs will be 79 degrees, the lows 69 degrees. And finally on Sunday we will see some rain and a thunderstorm in the afternoon highs of 78 and lows of 69 degrees. Next we'll go to the lottery. The numbers game for yesterday, Tuesday, September 5th at the midday drawing were 3442. Again, those numbers are 3, 4, 4, 2. The evening drawing, the numbers were 7, 5, 7, 3. Again, that's seven, five, seven, three. The mass cash numbers for Tuesday, September 5th, 11, 18, 19, 25, and 29. And the Powerball numbers for Monday, September 4th, 1, 26, 32, 46, 51, with the bonus of 13. Mega Millions for Tuesday, September 5th, were 3, 43, 50, 51, 65, with a bonus of 13. The Megabucks Doubler, Saturday, September 2nd numbers, were 3, 4, 7, 13, 24, 26, with 5 as the Doubler. And the Lucky for Life numbers on Tuesday, September 5th were 3, 23, 24, 31, 48, with a bonus of 9. And next, we'll move to our front page local story, which is entitled Fishing as a Force for Good. Chatham Co-op offers fresh catch all year round by Denise Coffey, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. Tucked between two 900-square-foot bays at Commerce Park is the unassuming headquarters of the Chatham Harvesters Cooperative. Nearly 20 local fishermen are members, and the fish they catch daily is brought here for filleting, processing, and sale. The cooperative is unique in the state Incorporated six years ago, its business model means fishermen own and operate the business, share in the decision-making, profit, and revenue. Everything centers around the fishermen, said cooperative manager Brett Tolly. Our idea is to move fishermen from being, quote, price takers, end quote, to, quote, price makers, unquote. We can build a supply chain that has a fair price paid to the fishermen and a fair price to the local community. The cooperative offers seasonal memberships in summer, fall, winter, and spring that range from $100 to $500 a share. A $15 membership fee covers the cost of running the program. Members spend down their balances over the course of each season. This community supported fishery model operates like a community supported agriculture model, but with a big distinction. Members are not required to use up their balances weekly. They can spend it all in one week or go weeks without getting any product and members can increase their fish shares in $100 increments during the season. The primary revenue generator is the membership program, Tolly said. This summer, 250 members signed up in advance for fish shares. Those shares can be dropped at one of seven locations and farmers markets Monday through Friday. People can pick up their shares at the Chatham headquarters on Fridays. Ordering is done online. Fish and fish products are listed with pictures, brief descriptions, and the price per pound or half pound. Because fishing is weather and season dependent, the availability of product can fluctuate. Member orders are prioritized. The public can purchase fish at farmer's markets on a first-come, first-served basis. The catch changes with the day, the fishermen, and the season, but members and the public have access to fresh fish daily, Tolly said. The cooperative brings its fresh catch to certain farmer's markets. On August 25th, Tolly sat beneath a pop-up canopy tent in Commerce Park, waiting for share members and the public to stop by. Fresh fish that day included black sea bass, summer flounder, and dogfish. But the flash-frozen and value-added product mean high-quality fish can be available year-round, Tolly said. He knows of no one else freezing local catch for retail and wholesale. Otherwise, fish have to be trucked to Boston or New Bedford for processing before it returns to the Cape. And many of the most popular fish, salmon, haddock, and cod, are imported, not caught locally. Inside one bay is a commercial kitchen. Fisherman and board member Doug Feeney makes smoked mackerel, shark bites, which are similar to clam cakes but made with dogfish, monkfish chowder base, and clam pies. Varieties of local fish are filleted, flash-frozen, and vacuum-sealed. Products include skate wings and medallions, big-eye and yellowfin tuna steaks, and poke packs, dogfish and black sea bass fillets and scallops. People don't know what fishermen are catching or what species of fish are abundant in local waters, Tolly said. They are relying on what he calls an industrial supply chain to help bridge that gap. The cooperative offers events where members can learn about a locally abundant species of fish and how to cook it, taste samples, and listen to tales from the fishermen. They use farmers markets to meet customers face-to-face, write newsletters for members, share recipes, videos, and use social media to spread the word. Tali texts members about fresh catches. When people buy from us, they know who caught it, where the money is going, and know that we are actively doing right by the ocean and ecosystem, Tolly said. Our mission is to use fishing as a force for good. Our next local story, Teen Struck Killed by Train in Bourne near the Cape Cod Canal by Walker Armstrong, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. An 18-year-old from Bourne died by suicide Monday evening when she was struck and killed by a train near Perry Avenue and Uptuckstack Road, according to authorities. The Cape Flyer train was traveling on tracks along the Cape Cod Canal at about 7.13 p.m., when the person was hit, according to a post on the Bourne Police Department Facebook page. The train, which is operated by the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, was headed to Boston, according to the train schedule. Bourne police and fire departments were dispatched to the scene where they found the body of the teen, police said. The Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office told The Times on Thursday the woman died by suicide. The incident is being investigated by Massachusetts State Police detectives assigned to the Cape and Island District Attorney's Office and MBTA Police. Our our condolences go out to the family of the individual involved, the Facebook post said a public health emergency. Eileen Elias, the former Massachusetts Commissioner of Mental Health, said suicide has historically been a stigmatized and misunderstood issue. But she said increased awareness has led to the development of several resources available to those who seek and require help. The National Alliance on Mental Health and Sharing Kindness are two resources Elias recommended to individuals suffering from suicidal ideation and mental illness. Suicide has horribly increased in Massachusetts, Elias said. We absolutely have a public health emergency, and this young person's death is part of that indicator that we have a problem. If you need help, The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is a hotline for individuals in crisis or for those looking to help someone else. To speak with a certified listener, call 1-800-273-8255. Crisis Text Line is a texting service for emotional crisis support. To speak with a trained listener, text Hello to 741-741. It is free, available 24-7, and confidential. If you or someone you know is in crisis, you can also call the Bay Cove Crisis Hotline at 1-833-229-2683. For more information about suicide prevention and how you can help, visit www.suicideispreventable.net. Our next story on the Cape and Islands page is entitled, Seashore Credited with 4 Million Visitors, $750 Million Impact by Denise Coffey, USA Today, Cape Cod Times. The Cape Cod National Seashore easily topped Massachusetts' list of 18 national parks in 2022 visitor spending and economic output, according to a recently released annual report from the National Park Service. In 2022, the state saw as a whole 8.2 million visitors who spent about $828 million in gateway regions. Those regions are considered areas within 60 miles of the park. The seashore brought in an estimated 4 million visitors who spent $548 million in local gateway regions or 66% of the state's total. The annual number of visitors to the seashore has averaged 4 million since 2018. The peak year since the seashore's creation was in 1990, with 5,449,380 visitors, according to National Park Service records. Visitors are spending money on groceries, gas, hotels, and more. The economic output associated with the seashore was 58% compared to the state as a whole. That figure for the state was $1.3 billion. For the seashore, it was $750 million. The Park Service's interactive map breaks down a variety of sectors impacted by visitor spending. They include grocery, camping, gas, hotels, restaurants, retail, transportation, and recreational industries. Cape Cod National Seashore Superintendent Brian Carlstrom called tourism a critical driver of the Cape's economy. Bringing in 6,680 jobs and $750 million in revenue. The peer reviewed visitor spending analysis was conducted by economists at the National Park Service. The report showed that the cumulative benefit to the U.S. economy in 2022 was. $50.3 billion. The lodging and restaurant sectors had the highest direct effects, with $9 billion and $4.6 billion in economic output nationally. For more information on the report, go to www.nps.gov slash subjects slash Social Science Slash. The picture accompanying this story is entitled Post-Labor Day Relaxation. It's a picture of a beach with a harbor and beautiful boats. The caption reads, A lone beach umbrella and a couple beach chairs take up some real estate on Monument Beach in Bourne on a quiet Tuesday morning the day after Labor Day. The next story on the Cape and Islands page is entitled, West Nile Virus is Back in Massachusetts. Here's What You Need to Know by Rashik Tabassam Mujib, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. Two Massachusetts residents tested positive for West Nile virus as of August 29, according to the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. On Cape Cod, the virus has also been detected in a mosquito sample collected from the town of Barnstable, the department said on Thursday. The virus was detected in a sample from West Barnstable on August 24, and in another mosquito sample collected on August 24th in the Fort Hill area in Eastham, according to the Barnstable County website. Of the two human cases, one individual was exposed in Middlesex County and the other contracted the virus outside of the state, according to the state. August and September, are the months when most people are exposed to West Nile virus in Massachusetts, said Public Health Commissioner Robert Goldstein in a statement. Populations of mosquitoes that can carry and spread this virus are fairly large this year, and we have seen recent increases in the number of West Nile virus-positive mosquito samples from multiple parts of the Commonwealth. West Nile virus is most commonly transmitted to humans by the bite of an infected mosquito. The mosquitoes that carry this virus are common throughout the state and found in urban as well as more rural areas. West Nile virus is usually spread by mosquito species that lay their eggs mostly in man-made containers, said Gabrielle Sokulski, superintendent of Cape Cod Mosquito Control. What are the symptoms of West Nile virus? Most people who become infected with the virus don't get ill but about 20% experience symptoms, including fever, headache, body aches, nausea, skin rash, and tiredness, according to the release. Some people may experience severe headaches, confusion, neck stiffness, and muscle weakness. Those 50 years and older have a higher risk of severe complications. How can you protect yourself from West Nile virus? Common procedures include emptying any standing water around your home, including in flower pots and pet bowls, to reduce breeding grounds for the insects. According to Sokolsky, other precautions include using insect repellent with DEET, Picaridin, or oil of lemon eucalyptus, limiting outdoor activity at dusk and dawn when most mosquitoes are active, and wearing long sleeve shirts and pants when outside. After all the rain we've had this year, it's very important that people go around their yard and empty out any containers that are holding water, said Sakolsky. Even that, even though we're at low risk, the virus may be circling around, and people should take precautions not to be bitten by mosquitoes," she said. Cape Cod Mosquito Control Project staff worked over the Labor Day weekend, looking for mosquito larvae and applying larvicides when found. We will continue to work closely with the MDPH Arbovirus Surveillance Program and Cape Cod Mosquito Control on Mosquito Control and Surveillance Efforts, the Inspectional Services Department of the Public Health Division in Barnstable shared in a statement. For more information about the virus, go to www mass.gov slash info-details slash west-nile-virus-wnv. And there is a picture of several mosquitoes accompanying this story with a caption that reads, Mosquitoes await counting. By the Cape Mosquito Control Project in 2018. And next we'll go to a Massachusetts state story, which is entitled Bond Bill Shaping Up as Next Housing Battleground by Michael P. Norton, State House News Service. It's now eight months into Governor Maura Healey's administration, and the wait continues for major proposals from the corner office to address perhaps the governor's signature issue, housing affordability and production. Some people in the advocacy world feel that's going to change soon and want the governor to, quote, go big, end quote, to address the state's housing crunch. We have been hearing that the housing bond bill could show up sometime this month, Phil Jones of the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization told the News Service on Tuesday. We are expecting the Governor to make her proposal first. Jones said he's not heard what's in the bill, and said some legislators have said some legislators have said that they're waiting for healy to make the first move the executive branch oversees state capital spending putting it in a good position to understand which programs may be running low on available funds Housing activists have been pressing the idea of enabling cities and towns to assess fees on real estate transactions to raise money for affordable housing. And Jones said administration officials, quote, spoke positively, end quote, about that idea at a recent GBIO event but the organization is unsure if Healy will actually propose it. We're not sure where that will show up, but we're feeling confident about it passing with administrative support this session, said Jones, who lives and rents in Boston and is co-chair of GBIO's Housing Justice Campaign she could roll it into a bond bill many transfer fee supporters want to see the new levy slapped on higher-end housing transactions and crafting a proposal that would enable all 351 cities and towns to take advantage of a new fee regime not just those with higher property values looms as a policy challenge. The real estate lobby has strongly opposed transfer fees, deriding them as new taxes, and has helped defeat fee proposals for years on Beacon Hill. GBIO and other housing groups have identified $8.5 billion in deferred maintenance that needs to be addressed at state-owned public housing units and is hoping for at least $1 billion to be included in the bond bill. The transfer fee, public housing investments, and housing access for people coming out of jails and prisons are among the topics GBIO plans to push during a fall campaign featuring meetings with state representatives and senators, Jones said. Our best move is to try to get these issues into the public eye as much as possible, he said. Citizens Housing and Planning Association hopes a bond bill will recapitalize programs that serve working families, the elderly, people with disabilities, and those who are homeless. The group expected Healy to offer a housing bond bill in the spring, according to its website. In 2018, lawmakers and Governor Charlie Baker agreed on a five-year, $1.8 billion housing bond bill. And advocates say money from that package is running out. During budget debate in May, Senators Liz Miranda and Jamie Eldridge talked up the need for improvements at 43,000 public housing units in 242 Massachusetts communities. Something that is on the minds of many of us is the Affordable Housing Bond Bill and the need for us to pass that this session. Eldridge, Former co chair of the legislature's Joint Committee on Housing said. And in other state news stories, DPU moves to smooth electric bill spikes. By Colin A. Young, State House News Service. State utility overseers on Friday ordered Eversource and National Grid to split two of the coldest and often most costly months of the year into two procurement and billing periods, implementing an idea that Maura Healey's office proposed when she was Attorney General eight years ago. The Department of Public Utilities said that ordering two of the state's three electric distribution companies to change their basic service periods for residential and small business customers to the six-month periods of February through July and August through January is, quote, expected to mitigate large seasonal changes in basic service electricity, supply prices and differences across electric distribution companies end quote. We're going to stop this story here and go to the obituaries at the half hour. We will return to this story after the obituaries. And now the obituaries, Alan B. Johnson. Born April 11, 1946, passed away September 2, 2023, age 77. It's with both sadness and gratitude that we announce the passing of Alan B. Johnson. Alan is survived by his loving wife of 51 years, Sandra Tawa Johnson of Hyannis. Visiting hours will be from 3 to 7 p.m. on Thursday, September 7th, 2023 in the Chapman Funeral and Cremations, John Lawrence Chapel, 3778 Falmouth Road, Marston's Mills, Massachusetts. A graveside service will be on Friday, September 8th, 2023 at 10 a.m. In the Massachusetts National Cemetery, Bourne, Massachusetts. For online guest book and directions, please visit www.chapmanfuneral.com. Annette Billado Willette, Annette Billado Willette, mother of seven, died peacefully on the morning of August 31, 2023. At the age of 88, from natural causes. Donations in her remembrance can be made to Pat Roche Hospice Home, 86 Turkey Hill Lane, Hingham, Massachusetts, 02043. There will be a wake at Nickerson Bourne Funeral Home on Route 6A in Sandwich, Massachusetts from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. on Monday, September 11th, followed by a Mass at Corpus Christi Catholic Church at 11.30 a.m. and a funeral prayer service and burial at the National Cemetery in Bourne at 1.30 p.m. Robert Patrick O'Neill Robert P. O'Neill, a longtime resident of Sandwich, passed away with loved ones by his side on August fifteenth in Hyannis. Burial will be private. Donations may be made in his honor to Community Connections FBO O'Neill Scholarship Fund, two six one Whites Path, Unit Number One. South Yarmouth, Massachusetts, 02664. Kirk A. Bader. Kirk A. Bader of East Falmouth passed away on August 27, 2023. He is survived by his loving wife, Linda E. Bader. Visitation will take place on Saturday, August ninth, 2023, from 3 to 6 p.m. at Chapman Funerals and Cremations, 475 Main Street, Falmouth. For online obituary, directions, and guest book, visit www.chapmanfuneral.com. Frank J. Estrada, Jr., Frank J. Estrada, age 66, of Orleans, Massachusetts, passed away on August 17th at his residence on Main Street. A celebration of life will be held in Orleans at a later date. Barbara Howard, teacher of many games, teacher at Head Start slash Cape Cod Child Development, counselor and facilitator with Parents Anonymous, baseball coach, avid bowler, Sunday school teacher, passed away July 19th, 2023. Join us for a celebration of life, September 12th, 2 p.m. at St. Mary's Episcopal Church, 3055 Main Street, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630. Feel free to wear purple in honor of her favorite color. In lieu of flowers, please donate to Big Brothers Big Sisters of Cape Cod. And now we'll return to the story we were reading before the obituaries. That story is entitled, DPU Moves to Smooth Electric Bill Spikes. A third distribution company, Unitil, already uses the schedule. DPU said National Grid and Eversource supported the proposal. DPU launched an investigation in early January and made recommendations related to the way that basic service, which is the default electric service provided to customers who have not selected a competitive supplier or joined a municipal aggregation program, is procured and priced by utility companies. The idea of having the distribution companies adopt the same six-month rate periods to smooth out some steep seasonal differences was among DPU's proposals. The Baker administration warned Bay Staters last fall to brace for, quote, at best, a very high-cost energy winter, end quote, and it turned out that way. Natural gas customers saw a 28 percent increase in heating costs last winter. Homes with electric heat watched costs soar 57 percent, and the cost of heating a home with oil was up 63 percent, according to an analysis from the Department of Energy Resources. Due to our current reliance on fossil fuel generation, customers can experience significant volatility in electric supply prices, DPU Chair James Van Nostrand said Tuesday. Friday's decision is an important step towards minimizing significant price swings for basic service customers while we transition to clean energy sources that will not only help stabilize energy rates but also lower emissions and improve air quality. When DPU in 2015 launched a similar investigation, which dead-ended by mid-2016, the Attorney General's Office under Healy made a similar proposal saying that changing the rate periods, quote, will reduce the extreme rate spikes, end quote, that particularly affected National Grid customers at the time. In March, the Healy administration replaced two of three DPU commissioners and charged the trio with creating, quote, a 21st century DPU, end quote. And next, we'll go to a local Cape Cod sports story in high school football entitled A New Direction, Upper Cape Football Looks to the Future in 2023, by Andre Sims, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. The Upper Cape Rams football team have a new direction in 2023 led by first-year head coach Tom Pandisio, the Rams are trying to leave 2022 and beyond in the past. This season, it's about creating a new culture within the team, and for Pandisio, he says he already sees it taking hold. That enthusiasm that we tried to put in back in June That seed about changing culture, the team has caught on, Coach Pandisio said. He's brought a fresh energy to the program. The players describe him as strict, but they all know he knows what he's talking about and are enjoying playing for him. All positive things so far, Brody Scott said about his new head coach, He's got a good head on his shoulders. He's a good leader, no doubt. The Rams this year have an increase of numbers in the program and an increase in team spirit. Coach Pandisio said the focus for his team isn't just about what the Rams will do on the field, but how they feel off of it as well. He's doing this by empowering his players. Of course, he and his staff have their coaching responsibilities, but he's also encouraging more of his players to assume leadership roles in practice. They're tired of my voice, Coach Pandisio said laughing. They want to hear from each other. That's the team aspect, that accountability to teammates not to coaches. When you run out on the field on Friday or Saturday, you're playing for each other, not for us. A new coach means a new system. Coach Pandisio is reworking the Rams offense this season, and his son, Jeshua Pandisio, the Rams starting quarterback, is excited for the potential. It's going to be a lot of passing and zone running, which really plays to our players' strengths because we have a lot of really fast kids, really good runners with really good field vision, the quarterback said. Installing a new system is always a challenge. Though some concepts may be the same, getting players to pick up new terminology can be difficult. One new advantage this season that Coach Pandisio believes will help mitigate that issue is that this season all the Rams coaches also hold positions at teachers, as teachers at the school. In his eyes, this will allow for progress to be made outside of practices and help build familiarity and continuity. This is the first year where all of the coaches are inside teachers, so we see them every day. We get to talk to them every day, Coach Pandisio said. That's good or bad sometimes, but we understand how the kids learn. Coaching at a technical school presents unique challenges unique opportunities. Coach Pandisio said he took the job in June and had to tailor his team's off-season conditioning program to fit his players' work schedule. The work they do is physically demanding. From roofing to plumbing and beyond, the kids are already putting their bodies through a lot but Coach Pandisio says it ultimately just benefits them by instilling the work effort. They're not afraid to work, he said. We offered a morning program and an evening program because we understand. The Rams are looking to leave the issues that plagued them in seasons past. They enter 2023 with increased numbers in the program and an increased optimism to match. And the picture that goes with this story is of two football players with a caption that reads, Upper Cape Tech's quarterback, Jeshua Pandisio, on the left, looks to pass the ball during a practice drill. And next we'll move to a national news story entitled, commerce at the mercy of weather for businesses reliant on tourism extreme forecasts are new pandemic by may anderson associated press for small businesses that rely on summer tourism to keep afloat extreme weather is replacing the pandemic as the determining factor in how well a summer will go The pandemic had its ups and downs for tourism, with a total shutdown, followed by a rush of vacations due to pent-up demand. This year, small businesses say vacation cadences are returning to normal, but now they have extreme weather to deal with. Many say it's hurting business, but more temperate spots are seeing a surge. Tourism-related businesses have always been at the mercy of the weather. But with heat waves, fires, and storms becoming more frequent and intense, small businesses increasingly see extreme weather as their next long-term challenge. For Jared Myers, owner of Legacy Vacation Resorts, With eight locations, including four in Florida, Hurricane Idalia's landfall on August 30th as a Category 3 storm led to a loss in revenue as he temporarily closed one resort and closed another to new guests. It also means a lengthy cleanup period to fix gutter and other damage and beach cleanup including replanting of seagrass, sea grapes, and other plants to protect against the next storm. Even when the hurricane doesn't hit directly, it wreaks havoc economically, emotionally, to those that have suffered previous losses and to our way of life, he said. A lifelong Florida resident He's used to hurricanes, but fears their intensity is getting worse. In fact, the number of storms that intensify dramatically within 240 miles of a coastline across the globe grew to 15 a year in 2020, compared to 5 a year in 1980, according to a study published in Nature Communications. It does feel like, and probably will continue to feel like, we're just hopping from one emergency to another based on climate change, Myers said. For Steve Silberberg in Saco, Maine, who runs Fitpacking, a company that guides people on wilderness backpacking trips in national and state parks and forests, extreme weather is becoming a serious obstacle. National Park Service research has shown that national parks are experiencing extreme weather conditions at a higher rate than the rest of the country because of where they're located. Historic snowfall in March at Yosemite followed by a wildfire affected one hike Silverberg had planned. Another hike was canceled due to unusually large snowfall rendering the Narrows, which is part of Zion Canyon in Zion National Park in Utah, impossible impassable due to a high volume of meltwater. He had to cancel a trip to the Los Padres National Forest in California due to wildfires and subsequent flooding, which destroyed trails and made them impassable. We are quickly approaching a crossroads as to how to keep the business viable, he said. It seems that almost half of our trips are affected in some way, by increasingly extreme weather events. Silberberg is trying to find ways to make climate change work for him, however. He is thinking about starting a company that helps people visit places that may disappear due to climate change, such as Glacier National Park in Montana or the Everglades in Florida, which is threatened by rising sea levels. In Southern California, businesses faced sweltering heat, followed by Tropical Storm Hillary, the first tropical storm the region had seen in 84 years. Definitely extreme weather is here to say, said Sachi Mera, executive chief and partner at. Adya Indian restaurant in Anaheim, California. The restaurant is located in the Anaheim packing house, a food hall in a historic 1919 citrus packing house near Disneyland. The restaurant closed for a day proactively during Tropical Storm Hillary, losing a day of sales. Heat has been more of an issue as business slowed in late July this summer during a surge in temperatures. Mayra said she suspects the heat is behind the slowdown since typically things start to slow in late August or September. Media focus on extreme weather can hurt business too. Dan Dawson, owner of Horizon Divers, in Key Largo, Florida, saw a business boom during the pandemic. Now it's back to pre-pandemic levels. But when storms like Idalia close in, tourists flee, even though Dawson's spot in Key Largo was 300 miles from where Idalia hit. Once a storm is coming close, we stop diving. And once it goes by, It can take up to two weeks for tourists to come back, and that is if we don't have any damage, he said. It does feel like, and probably will continue to feel like, we're just hopping from one emergency to another based on climate change, said Jared Myers, owner of Legacy Vacation Resorts. And another weather-related story, Storm in Atlantic Likely to Become Major Hurricane, by Doyle Rice, USA Today. As of Tuesday, the system was still just a tropical depression far out to sea, but forecasters warn that it could soon explode into powerful Major Hurricane Lee. The question is, where is it going, and could it impact the United States? Interests across the Caribbean and along the East Coast from Florida to Maine will need to pay close attention to this feature, said AccuWeather meteorologist Brandon Buckingham. Depending on the path this system takes, the expected time frame for potential impacts to the United States and Atlantic, Atlantic Canada may be September 13th to 16th. The system, now dubbed Tropical Depression 13, was still more than 1,400 miles east of the Caribbean islands, the National Hurricane Center Rapid intensification is possible. Forecasters from the Hurricane Center predict that will become Hurricane Lee. They said the storm has the potential to be a Category 4, 130-mile-per-hour hurricane by Saturday morning east of Puerto Rico and continue strengthening into a 140-mile-per-hour storm by Sunday. The Hurricane Center said the rapid intensification is possible due to a reduction in wind shear in its path along with warm ocean water of near 86 degrees. Wind shear tears apart developing storms, while warm water acts as a fuel to power up storms. Prediction and timing of winds as of midday Tuesday. 12 hours, 45 mile per hour winds, which is a tropical storm. 24 hours, 60 mile per hour winds. 48 hours, 80 mile per hour winds, which is a category 1 hurricane. 60 hours, 90 miles per hour winds. 72 hours, 110 mile per hour winds, which is a category 2 hurricane. 96 hours, 130 mile per hour winds, which is a category 4 hurricane. And finally, 120 hours, 140 mile-per-hour winds. Track forecast uncertain. Latest indications suggest the storm track could vary across a wide swath spanning from the United States' east coast northward to eastern Canada, or even skirt away from the coast entirely, AccuWeather said. According to weather.com meteorologist Jonathan Erdman, a combination of factors will determine where the hurricane eventually goes as it makes its way across the Atlantic. This has been Carolyn reading to you from the Cape Cod Times on Wednesday, September sixth. I hope you all have a wonderful day.